Hello everybody, I'm Panicky in the UK, and this is Panicky Pictures. <coughs> I hope this podcast finds you well. Uh, I'm gonna try and keep it short and sweet this time around, I'm just doing a little roundup of all the films I watched for LGBT plus History Month. Uh, I was hoping to get this recorded a few days ago, it didn't happen, so, you know, that's fine. You know, we're not on a, we're not on a tight schedule, it doesn't matter, um, but I hope you enjoy this and nevertheless, um, I am just going to go through them basically in the order that I watched them. So that will be a semi-chronological order. I did try to watch these films in chronological order, but um, some of them I watched out of order and uh, we will get to that. Uh, so I didn't actually manage to get started until the 7th, which is not great, especially in February, which is the shortest month. Um, <laughs> I wasted uh, a full quarter of the month. Not wasted, but, you know, it was busy. But uh, on the 7th, I did watch Funny Boy, and of course I talked about that in some detail on my previous podcast episode. So if you are interested in uh, what I have to say about that then uh, please do go back and listen to that previous episode where I also talk about White Tiger and The Dig. But um, Funny Boy was... uh, It wasn't precisely what I was hoping to watch for this month in the sense that I was trying to go back and look at older queer films, Um, but it was set... Uh, in the 80s against this kind of interesting background of kind of historical and sociological disruption and uh, it wasn't entirely about being queer at that time in Sri Lanka but certainly it was you know a queer person's story against the backdrop of this incredibly tumultuous time uh, in Sri Lankan history so it did kind of fit the brief but not entirely but uh, again if you if you do want to hear me get into that in detail um you can listen to that previous episode. Uh, And then on the 9th, I watched Benjamin, which was not at all what I was trying to watch this month. Um, Very much kind of a contemporary relationship drama, not really about the kind of sociological or historical context of being queer at all, Um, more of a kind of you know, the characters happen to be gay kind of thing, which is, you know, uh, there's plenty of room for that too, but that's not really what I was looking for. But I have been wanting to watch this for a while and it was on all four, so it was going to expire eventually. So I just thought, you know what, I'll put that right at the beginning of the month just so I don't accidentally run out of time to watch it. So that was the second one that I watched. Um, I didn't enjoy it as much as I hoped that I would. I really like Simon Amstel. Um, It seems to be very much based on Woody Allen's Manhattan, which I think is probably not the best choice. Um, There were things about it that I really did like. And again, um, please look at my Letterboxd, uh, Panicky in the UK on Letterboxd, uh, where I've gone into uh, quite a lot of detail in my write-up. But I would say probably the highlight for me of the film was the Joel Fry character. So Joel Fry, uh, known to some people probably from Plebs or from Game of Thrones, he had a small role in in Game of Thrones, but people might recognise him from that. Um, He is going to be Wentworth in an upcoming adaptation of Persuasion, so that'll be really interesting. Uh, I really like Joel Fry and I love this character really kind of resonated with me. A straight character, weirdly enough, but there you go. 
But yeah, it just didn't quite all hang together for me. Again, you can look at the uh, write-up that I gave it on Letterboxd if you want to know a bit more about that. But uh, then on the 11th, we really get into what I was trying to do, which is really dig into some classic queer cinema. And I went all the way back to 1924 and the Carl Theodor Drive film, Michael, uh, or Mikhail, I suppose... I'm trying to remember how you pronounce the, uh, the name Michael in German, but uh, anyway. Really interesting. I felt like the queerness wasn't as apparent as I was expecting it to be. This is kind of hailed as a real uh, kind of landmark gay film, and for me I felt that it would be easy to overlook that aspect of it, and maybe read in more of a kind of surrogate father-son relationship instead and that very much is the way that the kind of intertitles seem to lean um whether those are the original intertitles or kind of what the translation is like i couldn't say i did find it really interesting it was the first dry film that i'd actually seen um and i definitely need to watch some more obviously um, really beautiful to look at, some gorgeous shots, um, quite interesting. Um, I wasn't crazy about the score, unfortunately, on the version that I watched, and I had to watch it on YouTube, uh, because I just couldn't find it anywhere else. And again, this is a film from 1924, it's a silent film. I believe it would be in the public domain, uh, as far as I'm aware, possibly not this particular version of it, but the film itself. Uh, but I couldn't find it on archive.org, or not easily. Um, I only managed to find it uh, on YouTube. Uh, so it was really, really interesting, but um, not quite as sort of obvious in its depiction of queerness as the next film I watched uh, on the 12th, Mädchen in Uniform, based on a play called Gestern und Heute, or Yesterday and Today. Um, but I believe there was a certain amount of pressure to change the title to maybe draw in a wider audience. This film, uh, part of it has been lost. Uh, so I believe, I mean, it was made in 1931, a couple of years before the Nazis came to power. It's a film from the Weimar Republic. And, uh, you know, I think that, um, censors both internationally and subsequently in Germany um, made extensive cuts to it and part of that film has now been lost so I believe that what is still surviving is missing maybe 15 minutes. Um, you can still follow the plot, again this is one I watched on YouTube, um, it didn't look great but it was perfectly watchable and the translation was fine. A really interesting film, slightly troubling in some ways in that the main character is 14, um, played by an actor in her 20s, early 20s, but the character herself is 14 and the sort of romance or flirtation is with an adult woman. Um, and there's also a kind of, again, a kind of surrogate mother-daughter thing going on and I think both of those things are kind of maybe potentially troubling red flags in queer stories where you know, you maybe have queerness conflated with certain types of predatory behaviour or with kind of quasi-incestuous behaviour, um, which, you know, maybe is not a trope that <laughs> is particularly welcome. Uh, obviously, you know, that is going to reflect some people's experience and if everybody's 
a consenting adult, which they're not in this case, um, then whatever, you know, uh, go wild. Uh, but, you know, you do kind of get that weird quasi-incestuous thing again in Carol, I think, in Todd Haynes's film Carol, where you feel like Therese is kind of equated with Carol's daughter in certain ways, and there is just something a little bit uncomfortable about that for me. But it's it's certainly really interesting. And I think, you know, as much as it is about kind of queerness and, you know, kind of adolescent um, discovering their identity, I think it's also very much about the rise of fascism. And in fact, I almost feel like that's more what it's about. Um, obviously, again, it was made in 1931, so you are seeing the Nazis rising to power at this time in Germany. And, you know, I, I feel like it's really kind of grappling with that. And in fact, many of the people who worked on this film were Jewish um, and, you know, would come to be obviously victimised by the Nazis. Um, so it's a really fascinating kind of historical document, I suppose, Um I, I wish that 15 minutes of it weren't lost. I'd be really interested to know what happened um, in those 15 minutes, to those 15 minutes. Um, it was also remade in the 50s, um, and it it was the inspiration for the film Loving Annabelle, which is much more recent. But to me, it feels very much of its time and very much a reflection of what was happening in Germany uh, during that period. Um, I haven't actually seen Loving Annabelle, but... I have to imagine that maybe it's much more focused on the kind of romance and queer identity element than on the sort of historical backdrop to that, which I think is one of the more interesting things actually about Mädchen in Uniform. But definitely worth a watch. Um, if you can find a better version of it than I managed to find, uh, then great. But again, I did find it on YouTube and it was totally watchable. So uh, if you're interested, you should be able to find that with only a small amount of digging. Uh, on the 14th, I watched Cloud Atlas, um, not really on my um, LGBT plus history month list, uh, but I kind of am including it just because obviously, you know, it has two trans women directors and a queer storyline. And I think also just the fact that it's so much about kind of challenging and transcending boundaries and the fluidity of identity, I think kind of makes it qualify as a as a film that at least touches on queerness, even if it isn't strictly a quote unquote queer film. Um, but I rewatched Cloud Atlas. I did uh, see it when it came out. I really liked it. I'd read the book as well. Um, I know people are kind of on the fence about it. It does work for me with some reservations. Um, and once again, uh, I did a whole write up about it on Letterboxd. So if you're interested, please do feel free to uh, go and check that out. Uh, Panicky in the UK on Letterboxd. Obviously, I'll put a link in the description and everything. Uh, the next day, I watched Screaming Queens, The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria, which is, um, I guess you would class it as a short documentary. It's not feature length, but it is an hour long. Now, um, this is from 2005, so um, it's more recent than most of the films that I was looking at this month, um, but uh, the reason I watched it at this point is because it was short and I was short on time that day, but uh, it is uh, referring back obviously to an incident that happened in the 60s and actually largely about the run-up to that incident, so going further back than that. 
um, and definitely kind of fulfills the brief that I was going for in terms of being a documentary uh, that is about kind of early queer history. Um, I think the content is better than the execution, it leaps around quite a lot, um, I feel like the um, the kind of narrator, who I think is also the co-director and the writer, uh, she kind of tries to use her own personal story as a framing device, but then kind of doesn't seem to have the courage of her convictions in totally making that the approach, so it kind of goes back and forth between a quite dry documentary with just factual voiceover and being more of a personal story and doesn't quite commit to either of those entirely but there's there's some really interesting content in here I I think it could be maybe a little bit better put together but um still you know a really interesting story um I actually wasn't familiar with the Compton's riot until relatively recently just the last couple of years and it was really interesting to find out more about it and the the kind of the things that led up to that. Um, so I would definitely recommend giving it a watch if you are interested in that topic, particularly I think in kind of queer activism pre-Stonewall. I think sometimes people forget um, that, you know, that queer people <laughs> existed before 1969. Uh, they don't forget that queer people existed, but I feel like there's a sense that, you know all queer people were closeted and no queer people were really kind of making waves, everybody was just hiding away and you know the reality is a lot more nuanced than that and more complex and you know queer history pre-1969 is not a monolith by any means and uh, this documentary does help to shed some light on that Um, but as I say maybe the execution could have been better but the content makes it worth it I think. The next day on the 16th, I watched Meeting the Man, James Baldwin in Paris, a very short documentary about James Baldwin. Didn't actually end up being really about his sexuality at all, um, and a really, really tough watch. There's just clearly so much animosity between the documentary maker Terence Dixon and Baldwin and Baldwin's friends that um, it's just incredibly incredibly tense and I found that really kind of detracted from it for me I haven't seen I'm not I mean I've read a certain amount of Baldwin not as much as I would like but I've read Giovanni's Room and Go Tell It on the Mountain um I probably imagine as far as Baldwin goes that something like I'm Not Your Negro is probably a better sort of introduction to Baldwin than this would be uh just because even though this is kind of an interesting document it's just so deeply tense and difficult to watch that I found it really hard to take in the points that Baldwin was making I suppose um I mean you know some people just might not find that that bothers them so much and might not find it so distracting for me it just uh I just found it really hard to um to concentrate on really what Baldwin was trying to say just because the atmosphere of the film um was so difficult but it's a it's a short documentary and it is available on Mubi, and that is from 1971. But yeah, it didn't really end up being about queerness at all. Um, I mean, some interesting stuff about kind of blackness and, you know, the experience of being a black American in Paris as opposed to in the US. So, you know, some interesting stuff there, but uh, um, not something that I would wholeheartedly recommend, certainly not as an introduction to Baldwin and his ideas. But uh, moving on, on the 20th, I finally 
found time to watch Fox and His Friends, um, which I just hadn't been able to fit in before that, which was kind of why I watched a couple of short documentaries between that and uh, Mädchen in Uniform. Fox and His Friends, uh, a uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder film from 1975. And actually the first Fassbinder film I've ever seen, um, embarrassingly for me. Uh, really interesting. Um, you know, again, I felt like queerness wasn't really the, um, primary subject of this film. It was much more about class, which I thought was really fascinating. Um, and another thing that I think is really interesting is that so many of these kind of early queer films, um, are German. So Michael, Mieten in Uniform, Cloud Atlas actually is, um, the, had a German director and was partially shot in Germany, although I'm not, obviously it's not an early queer film. Um, but, uh, yeah, Fox and His Friends from 1975, obviously quite a substantial leap forward in time. And now we're talking about a divided Germany. This is a film that was made in West Germany, obviously, um, and post-war. So huge, huge changes, but still it's, it's interesting, I think, that Germany really has such a a, a strong history uh, of queer film going right back to the early days. And there, there are other examples as well that I couldn't easily get hold of, like different from the others, um, and quite a few. I've, I've got a, a whole list of them uh, somewhere. But, uh, but yeah, those kind of Weimar-era um, early queer films um, are really interesting. And it is interesting, I think, that so many of those coming out of Germany and, you know, barely any from anywhere else. I mean, I think Germany was one of the bigger film industries at that time. Um, because of kind of state censorship, you wouldn't really see a lot of queer films in the US even before the Hays Code. Um, the the US film industry, um, they weren't federally regulated, um, but uh, in order to make sure that they wouldn't be banned by state censor boards, uh, they would tend to be pretty conservative and they had a whole list of things that they would avoid, um, quote-unquote sexual perversion being one of them, and that was the case even before the Hays Code came in. So even in pre-code films, you're less likely to find queer content um, in films coming out of the US uh, than in films coming out of Europe, particularly Germany. Um, and I just think that's really interesting. And I think that whole Weimar era is just totally fascinating and um, something I want to dig into in more detail. But um, I'm getting off track. Uh, Fox and His Friends, really interesting, quite bleak, um, sometimes quite hard going for me. Partly, I think, because I found the character of Fox himself quite difficult to get a handle on. Couldn't entirely figure out his motivations. Couldn't even entirely figure out his personality. I, I couldn't quite get to grips with who he was. But it's really interesting in terms of this kind of relationship between a bourgeois man and a working class man who is newly wealthy. And it's really interesting, you know, I'm a big Tales of the City fan and I'm talking about like the books and the original TV series more than the reboot. And in those early stories from Tales of the City, you do get this particular scene. And in the TV show, actually, it was Ian McKellen uh, playing one of these uh, bougie, rich gay guys. But it's it's kind of a similar thing, you know? Michael gets this new boyfriend and uh, the new boyfriend has all these kind of rich, bougie, older friends and takes Michael along. And Michael, this is uh, Michael Mouse Tolliver, of course, 
uh, doesn't really fit in, feels out of his element. And I was really reminded of that storyline while I was watching Fox and his friends. It's very much the same kind of thing. And, you know, those those two things were kind of around the same time. Tales of the City started coming out in the early 70s. Fox and his friends is 1975. So it feels like there was something in the ether at this point that I suppose has disappeared since then, understandably. I mean, you know, I think that in the 80s, obviously, you have the AIDS crisis, which, you know, completely transformed life for, for queer people, particularly queer men. But also, you know, you have neoliberalism, which equally transformed things for pretty much everybody. So I think that you have these two incredibly impactful things happening at the same time. And so you you kind of come out of the 80s and class dynamics have been transformed, queer life has been transformed, so this is something that you just don't seem to see as much in, um, in queer stories after, after the 70s, I think understandably, but it's really interesting that that was something that was so much in the zeitgeist at that time, and then just kind of, I think, fell away. I mean, I'd be interested to hear other points of view, you know, it's entirely possible that I'm missing something, but that, uh, you know, that's been my observation, is that this is something that's kind of fairly prevalent in uh, stories from the early and mid-70s, and then becomes much less common as time goes on. But speaking of the 70s, uh, the next movie that I watched was on the 21st, and that was Gay USA, uh, and that is uh, directed by Arthur J. Bresson Jr., who also directed Buddies in 1985, which is the first... Uh, I believe the first feature film uh, to be about AIDS, or the first narrative feature film. Um, Really, really great micro-budget film. I really, really recommend it to anybody who is interested um, in that period. I I watched it for World AIDS Day uh, last year, and it's absolutely great. Um, And anyway, this is the same director, Gay USA, 1977, obviously uh, before... The AIDS crisis really hit. Um, so I was doing a little bit of research actually about the AIDS crisis, and apparently in the late seventies, intravenous drug users in New York City were beginning to mysteriously die of um, pneumonia, and this was referred to as junkie pneumonia or the dwindles. So, you know, it does seem that um, HIV/AIDS was making its way around that very vulnerable population at that time, but obviously nobody was taking any notice, uh, just as they would continue not to take any notice when it, um, you know, had the effect that it did on the queer community. And it was only when it started, you know, affecting people that uh, the neoliberals actually cared about that anybody started to do anything about it. So it uh, made me really angry to read that. But anyway, let's not get bogged down. Let's talk about Gay USA 1977, um, which is just a lovely documentary. Um, Basically just a kind of largely observational um, documentary about various pride parades going on throughout the USA in 1977, mostly the ones in New York and San Francisco, but also others throughout the country. There's a lot of vox pops, and then you get these sequences where there are folk songs, like queer-themed folk songs over the top, 
and then occasionally you have a sequence where there's a kind of voiceover giving you some historical information and you'll have like archive footage and photography uh, kind of uh, edited in as well but mostly it is just about those pride parades and just kind of the people there little vox pops with them doesn't really focus on any one person in particular Uh, there were lots of different crews working in different places to get the footage lots of different interviewers so it really doesn't center anybody it kind of runs the gamut and i think it's all the better for that in many ways it's a really really joyful film um it does touch on some other thing you know it touches on the holocaust um And I think that's actually the film's weak point. I think maybe it doesn't quite do that with the sensitivity that is needed. But generally speaking, just really joyful and really celebratory and kind of made me feel quite sad um, to watch it at this time when, you know, obviously Pride Parades last year were cancelled and probably will be largely again this year, Um, you know, uh, both celebrations and protests, um have been really difficult lately to get to and so has just you know getting out in a crowd of people um in general it it, it just felt really poignant for me and it's weird because I've never been the biggest pride person like I'm not a big crowd person um but yeah it just there was something really quite moving about it for me um and that is highly recommended and it is on movie uh Alright, moving on. Skipping ahead all the way to 1984, uh, on the 24th I watched Before Stonewall. And this is another documentary where the execution is, you know, um, pretty workmanlike, um, but the content is totally fascinating. And, you know, it is really interesting, obviously, this was made in 1984, but because it's harking back to, I would say it kind of, um, it tries to cover the early years of the 20th century, but it doesn't really have a huge amount to go on there, Um, and then it kind of really gets going uh, when it's talking about the 40s through the 60s, and I think that's largely because the actual interview subjects that they're speaking to were kind of adults and active around that time so that's when they have all this material to go on and there's some really fascinating stuff in that but interesting you know that it doesn't refer to AIDS at all uh understandable because it's as I say you know it's a documentary about the uh, life for queer people pre-Stonewall almost exclusively in the US there is a very brief uh, mention of again the Weimar Republic and um the sexologist Dr Hirschfeld who Well, his records eventually, unfortunately, were used by the Nazis to then uh, round up many of his patients. Um, But uh, he, at the time, you know, was very kind of progressive and uh, I think essentially issued licenses for people so that they could cross-dress. So obviously you know this was a big thing before there was widespread understanding of trans identities and this comes up uh in uh screaming queens as well quite a lot you know people will be prosecuted as female uh, impersonators essentially particularly in the us and i'm sure in in the uk too but in weimar germany you know the there was access to to these doctors, these sexologists who could issue you a license so that you wouldn't be prosecuted for that but then um, obviously when the Nazis took over those mechanisms that had 
sort of provided a safety for queer people ended up being used to further victimize them um which is a really scary thought i think especially when we're looking at kind of legislation now for trans people that is supposed to protect them when you think about how do you do that in a way that can't subsequently be abused i just you know i think is something that needs to be really carefully thought about um but yeah largely before stonewall is confined to u.s history um and you know there's a lot of really really interesting stuff there i think maybe it's a bit too diffuse um there are some incredibly interesting stories that really i think deserve their own film and only get touched on and then i think because it's trying to do too much you end up with incredibly interesting stories not getting enough time and then maybe less interesting stories possibly getting too much time you do get interviews with audrey lord and with um a native american lesbian activist but uh you know it it could be better on intersectionality it doesn't really delve into the lives of trans people at all it doesn't really acknowledge the existence of bisexuality at all so, you know, it's it's a bit limited, but I think for the time that it was made, 1984, it's not bad at all. Um, definitely plenty of interesting content there. And what did I watch next? Oh, yeah, so the next day, next night, I watched The Watermelon Woman, uh, the Cheryl Dunier kind of docu-fiction, uh, what do you call it? Uh, auto-fiction, pseudo-documentary, micro-micro-budget, um got rom-com elements in there it's a real uh, mashup of different genres and different ideas and I think it really works I mean sometimes the uh very 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 low budget does show for sure but it's it's really inspiring sometimes to watch incredibly low budget films and just see what can be done with limited resources if people are passionate about their idea and I think this is a great idea you know, it kind of has that hangout movie feel of people who, you know, they work in a video store and, you know, it has that kind of pop culture literate feel of, you know, maybe like a Kevin Smith type thing. But then at the same time, it's really interested in ideas around race, around who we remember and who we don't, who gets to tell their own story, you know. And, you know, I was thinking about movies that have been made in the last five or ten years even about black women. So few of them have actually been written and directed by black women, you know? It still feels like it's so hard for black women to get the chance to tell their own stories, even now. And, you know, The Watermelon Woman is 25 years old and it's really grappling with those issues. And so, so many interesting things going on here around kind of like dating outside your own race and the complexities of that around um intersectionality you know when it comes to the lesbian experience for black women as opposed to the lesbian experience for white women um the history of film and who who who's allowed to be a film historian and who is allowed to uh drive that narrative right and you know just so many interesting ideas at work here you know, as I say, sometimes that very low budget really does show, but I think that it's an incredibly creative and passionate film, and, you know, that really shines through even when the budget maybe kind of lets it down occasionally. Um, it's been on my list for um, a good few years now, and I'm glad that I finally got around to watching it. Uh, I really enjoyed it. 
Uh, and again, that's something that is on Mubi, and uh, I believe it's also on Canopy if you are a student and have access to Canopy. I think if you're in the US, you can probably access Canopy also through your like local library, um, or at least depending on where you are. Um, so a few options to uh, watch The Watermelon Woman, and of course I'm sure that you can find a way to rent it somewhere too. Uh, and finally, on the 28th, I watched Closing Numbers, which was a Channel 4 kind of made-for-TV movie starring Jane Asher, and it is all about the AIDS crisis. I believe it was made for World AIDS Day. So it was written by David Cook, who I think, I mean, was most famous for being an actor. I wasn't very familiar with his work, but I believe he was involved in the children's TV show Rainbow, in some capacity and is mostly known for that was also an actor but did have something of a screenwriting career as well unfortunately i think this film suffers from trying to appeal to a straight audience so largely the film is told through the eyes of the jane asher character who's this kind of straight housewife who finds out that her husband is bisexual, has been cheating on her with men, and that she may have been exposed to HIV. So first of all, this is pretty much the first film I watched this month which really acknowledged bisexuality, apart from Cloud Atlas, obviously, um, which, as, as I say, wasn't really one of my um, History Month picks. It was more just that I wanted to rewatch it and it was expiring on Prime, so that doesn't really count. So of the ones that I actually plan to watch for LGBT plus History Month. Uh, this and Michael are the only ones that really reference bisexuality, and in both cases, <laughs> bisexuals don't really, don't get the best representation. Um, certainly in this, you basically tick all of the kind of negative stereotype boxes for bisexuals, where it's like, uh, he's confused, he's cheating, he's lying, he's exposing people to HIV and refusing to get tested, like, it's a real mess, um, so <laughs> I don't love that, um, I don't love the fact that it's almost entirely through the eyes of, um, a straight person, and then secondarily through the eyes of a gay person who is HIV negative, and then the, the bisexual guy and the HIV positive gay guy are both kind of secondary characters and you don't really see things from their perspective. They're more sort of um, objects uh, that, you know, that the point of view characters, I don't know, observe and judge and talk about and think about, but, you know, you don't actually largely see things from their point of view. I, I do think that the film is, is more successful when it's kind of looking at the relationship between uh, the two gay men, one of whom is a carer and one of whom is HIV positive, and to a lesser extent the Jane Asher character and the, the HIV positive guy. That stuff feels more like it's coming from the heart and there's an authenticity to it. Then when you get into the kind of more marital strife stuff, which is both between the Jane Asher character and her husband and also um, an older couple who turn out to be Jim's parents. That stuff feels very soapy and very kind of rote and a bit melodramatic. So, I mean, it's interesting as, like, again, a document of how the AIDS crisis and people with HIV AIDS were 
being represented in the media at this time and you know this comes out the same year as Philadelphia which I think is kind of doing a similar thing in the sense that it's like from the point of view of a straight person who gradually becomes educated and more sympathetic through like observing uh this HIV positive person um and then you get that same pattern repeated to some degree in Dallas Buyers Club which I hate like Dallas Buyers Club is the kind of thing where I think when the script was first written it was around this time it was like the mid 90s where uh, that was a more appropriate time for that kind of story Dallas Buyers Club coming out in the 21st century (laughs) and you know doing this let's do an aid story from the point of view of a homophobic straight guy who in real life by the way may well have been bisexual and in the movie they made him out to be not only a straight guy but an incredibly homophobic straight guy and they make up this uh fictional trans character who is played by a cis straight man or at least i think leto is straight who knows and is named rayon like Ugh, just disgusting. I hate that film. It's the worst. And the same director is crazy, which I really like, so... But anyway, um... I guess what I'm trying to say is that this film is very much of its time, uh, which is more than you can say for Dallas Buyers Club, because, you know, that came out in the last decade, and, you know, worse than this. Was worse than this. So anyway, closing numbers, probably not something that I would really recommend, but very interesting to to see how um AIDS was being discussed in media that was probably primarily aimed at a mainstream straight audience um so definitely really interesting in that sense but not successful in and of itself as a film uh and that was pretty much it so I think that I watched 10 films altogether if you don't count um, Meeting the Man, the James Baldwin documentary, which is very short, and Cloud Atlas, which obviously is kind of a borderline case. So 10 is not great, um, but, you know, it's um, it's better than nothing. Uh, and as I said, um, you can uh, go to my letterboxd and you can read more in-depth write-ups of uh, all of those films if you're interested. Uh, You can also go back and listen to my previous episode uh, where I talk about Funny Boy in a lot more detail if you're interested in that. Um, I am sincerely hoping to, in the next couple of weeks, put out an episode about uh, the Russell T. Davis TV drama It's a Sin, uh, which everybody is talking about. and I'm going to catch up with everybody. Um, so, uh, fingers crossed, uh, that will be coming out relatively soon. So, uh, keep your eyes open for that if you're interested. And uh, I hope that you have a great March. And that, uh, you know, the uh, the weather continues to get better. And we can all just go outside and, you know, not breathe on each other and stuff. Um, and, uh, anyway, I hope that you enjoyed this episode if you listened and, well, obviously if you're hearing this, you listened. What a stupid thing to say. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope that you will tune in next time. Thanks very much. Cheerio.